We're continuing our series through Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. This morning our text is Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail the king of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. They put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking what the scribes and elders said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Humbling words. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, This is your word before us. Please speak to us. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes and our hearts to receive your truth, understand your truth, apply your truth, love you more because of your who you are and your revealed truth. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. I'd encourage you to have your outlines nearby as well. We'll refer to those often through the lesson. I welcome constructive feedback on my lessons. My son this week more than once said, Dad, can you make your lessons kid-friendly so I know what you're talking about? (laughs) So... Today, I will attempt a kid-friendly crucifixion account. Um, and I do, we want, Pastor Brian and I, we take that real seriously. We, we obviously are a church right now where all ages are in together. And that's something I grew up with. It's something I appreciate. I love being able to worship with my kids for every single part of the service. So it's a good reminder to me. So with the young people in the room, hopefully you can understand some of this if you're too young and you're making noise, hopefully I can speak over your noise level. And hopefully we can appreciate this is the cry room 
So if, if babies are crying in here, we will not be distracted. We will focus on God and his holy word. Uh, this is a serious passage, and, and this is maybe one if the kids do understand, you parents will need to help them through some things on the drive home. As we look at our notes and we begin, uh, Roman numeral number one, we see in those first few verses the Savior being mocked. For context's sake, um, we remind ourselves that there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have their, they write the gospel, and they write it, especially this part, based on their intention for how they're portraying Jesus Christ. And I want to be very cautious about that. The, the authors are not leaving things out in a way of, oh, we, we want to put Jesus this way, so we can't mention that. But you're not mentioning everything, any more than you and I would mention everything if I asked how was your Thanksgiving, you probably wouldn't literally tell me everything in chronological order. I, I don't have seven hours to listen to your seven-hour Thanksgiving. You'd summarize it. You'd say, we did this, we did this, we met with them, we enjoyed this. There'd be things you summarized, there'd be things you said word for word, there'd be things you left out as you were trying to communicate to me how your Thanksgiving was, and I would appreciate so the, the gospel writers, they're not going play by play through all 20-some hours uh, from the upper room to the cross, but they're mentioning things to lead us in this story. And so every gospel writer, they're portraying Jesus in a certain way. They're communicating Jesus to a certain audience. So with that, there are things left out of some gospel accounts that are included in others. For our sake, with the chronology of what's happening, what just happens before this account is the scourging of Jesus. Okay? For, for the sake of the kids, that's horrible abuse. Horrible whipping. Horrible pain. It's a pain leading you up to the point. It's not going to be a pain that leads you to die. It's going to be a pain that makes you wish you were dead. Horrible. This is what Jesus just endures before verse 27. So we get to verse 27. We have in our minds, Jesus was just whipped and abused horribly. And then verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. A garrison, that's roughly 600 Roman soldiers. So we have literally hundreds of Roman soldiers that just after Jesus was beaten, they bring him into a room in private, just Jesus and the hundreds of them, purely for the purpose of mocking him even more. They bring him, we, we see in verse 28, they, they strip him of his clothes, and if we imagine what that whipping would have been and how the whipping would have opened the skin of Jesus in so many different ways to where it would have had the appearance of stripes because the, the wounds would have been so thick and so dark. And then they put the clothes on him. So then the taking off of the clothes would have been just this ripping, more painful sensation. And they're taking the clothes off of him, a very, a very humbling thing, of course. And then they're putting a scarlet robe on him. And again, for the kid's sake, so we understand what that means, um, in our culture, we have open access to many, many bright, beautiful colors. 
in that era, in that time in history, in that place in the world, bright, dark reds and purples would have been very, very hard to come across. It would have been hard to come across because it was very, very hard to get that substance to make it look that color. So if you had an entire garment of a dark red, an entire garment of a purple, an entire garment of scarlet, that would have cost so much money. So that was, for the most part, reserved for royalty or really, really rich people, usually both. Okay, so for this, the the kings, the governors, the Caesars would wear the dark scarlets. They would wear the dark purples. So here's Jesus. His crime is he's the king. The Roman soldiers already don't respect the Jews. So if they would have heard it's a real, legitimate king of the Jews, they would have had no respect for that. But now Jesus, he's not, in their minds, the king of the Jews. He's the rejected king of the Jews. So how worthy is he of our scorn in the Roman mind? So they're in the governor's headquarters to find this scarlet robe. It's probably safe to say that this was something that somebody wore at some point in history, but now it's maybe tattered, maybe worn. And again, a king would not be wearing clothes that looked worn out. You'd only wear the best. So the the worn out stuff would be tossed to the side. Not worthy for Caesar, not worthy for the governor, but worthy for this fake king. So they find the scarlet robe and they put him on him. A king should have a crown. But in their minds, Jesus is not a king worthy of a good crown. So you look at the words. They, verse 29, they are the ones who twist the crown of thorns. This isn't something they found. It isn't something they bought at the local market. They took the time to go look for thorns. They took the time to pull them out of the garden. They took the time, the pain in their own hands, to pierce their fingers several times in order to fashion this mocking crown to put it on the head of the one that they are taking great joy to embarrass. They put it on his head. A king should have a scepter. But in their mind, Jesus is not a king worthy of a good scepter. So they find a reed. They put that in his hand. They bowed the knee before him, verse 29. Mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They take great time and effort to make Jesus look as pitiful as possible. And they mock him. Hail, the great King of the Jews. Hard to read, huh? This is our Savior we worship. This is our Lord that we follow. And we're seeing this done. They're not done. They spit on him. They strike him in the head. They mock him. They take the robe off him. These are things now that we've already seen happen. In the last chapter, the Jewish leaders did the same thing. The Jewish leaders mocked him. They spat on him. They hit him. Now the Roman 
uh, soldiers several hours later are going through the exact, doing the exact same thing to Jesus, our Lord and Savior is enduring this over and over and over again. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, then they again put the clothes on him and lead him away to be crucified. Matthew, if you're a movie fan, Matthew gives Easter eggs. Over and over in Matthew's account, there's times, many, many times, he says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, pointing back to the Old Testament. And sometimes he just gives you those little nuggets where the Old Testament audience would go, wait a second, wait a second. The crown of thorns is an Easter egg. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when we're first introduced to thorns. Thorns enter the picture because of Adam's fall. Adam sins. Let's back up a little bit. Adam's given a task. Before sin, Adam has a job to do. And some of us might have in our mind that work is a curse. And that's wrong. I'm going to say, listen very carefully. It's very subtle. Work is not a curse, but work is cursed. I'll say it again. Work itself is not a curse. Because work is a gift from God given to us by God before there was sin. But work has been cursed. Because of sin, the work that we do, the curse affects that. Sin affects that. Whatever your job is, if you're a nurse, you're taking care of sick people because of sin. If you're a nurse, the sick people are rejecting your help because of sin. If you're a farmer, you're plowing and it may not lead to good results. If you're a business person, you may invest 60 hours a week in your business and it still may not be enough to provide for your family. The curse affects the good stuff God has called us to do. Adam's job was till the land. He was a worker of the field. When sin comes in, thorns come in. Adam, your job is harder because of your sin. Adam, everyone's job after you is harder because of sin. Adam, you brought thorns. Fast forward, and here's Jesus wearing those thorns. The great second Adam, who's about to pay the price for sin, is wearing on his head a sign of sin. Roman numeral 2, the Savior fulfills Scripture. Now, the rest of our text from verse 32 to verse 44, according to Mark helps us out with this. These, all, all these things take place between 9 a.m. and noon on Good Friday. Okay, And so, so we see in verse 32, as they come out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross, to bear the cross of Jesus. So a few things we want to recognize here. Jewish law says that executions have to take place outside of the city. Okay, so, so all those being executed on the cross, they have to leave the city. Jesus, according to John, does begin carrying his cross at first. And whether that's the cross beam or the whole cross, uh, scripture doesn't indicate Roman, old Roman law. It's a little hard to say with certainty, so we won't go there. Either way, he's carrying a huge heavy weight. 
Okay, so Jesus is carrying this. He's carrying it outside of the city to where he's going to be crucified. And then we're introduced to Simon, who's compelled to carry the cross. Now, let's make sure we're understanding this compelling so we're on the same page. We learned, this must have been like two years ago now, back when we were in Matthew chapter 5, we talked about the Roman practice of compelling someone to carry things. Okay, so, so for a reminder, if you're a Roman official and you're given the task, you are in charge of getting this thing from point A to point B. If you're a Roman official, you're too important to do that yourself. So you make others do it. You carry that by order of Caesar. Stop what you're doing, pick that up, and carry it. You're big, you're strong, you can do it. And then you keep going. And you go on your way, let's say it's five miles Maybe it's a big, strong guy. He's probably going to run out of steam before he gets to mile five. So he's at mile one. He's at mile two. He's slowing you down as a Roman official. So you're done with him. Say, fine, put it down. You, big guy, you come, your turn. By order of Caesar, you carry this. I compel you. I force you, your turn, pick this heavy thing up, carry it with me. So depending on how big it is, depending on how far it is, you might compel three, five, 15 people to pay, play a part in compelling this, okay? So when this soldier compels Simon to carry the cross, so they're all on the same page, this wasn't because he felt sorry for Jesus. This is because Jesus is slowing him down. I have a job to do. You have to die. You are too slow. We're going to continue with our journey, but somebody else is going to start carrying this now. So according to Mark, Simon's going by. Simon was probably big and strong. You, Simon, by order of Caesar, I compel you to carry the cross. So now Simon is carrying it. This is what we got on Simon. He's Simon. He's Simon of Cyrene. Mark tells us a little bit more. Mark tells us he's Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Usually, if you're giving family lineage, it's to help you understand who the person is. Okay? Mark was written to a primarily Roman audience. The book of Romans mentions a Rufus. So when Paul gets to the end of his gospel account and he's giving his uh, thank this person, thank this person, greet this person, I'm thankful for this person, he mentions to a Roman audience how blessed he was by a man named Rufus. So, Bible scholars, and I want to be very careful, this is not a thus saith the Lord, but many Bible scholars look at, okay, Mark mentions, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, Paul praises a man named Rufus, Simon was probably saved. Something probably happened in this journey of him carrying the cross where the Holy Spirit moved in his heart in such a way that he and his family were saved by grace. What a testimony of the gospel that would be. So here's Simon. He carries his cross, forced to carry the cross for Jesus. They come to a place, verse 33, called Golgotha. That means place of a skull. They give him sour wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. And this is one of our first times in this little section where we see fulfillment of Scripture. There is speculation on what it means, sour wine mixed with gall. Some of the commentators I read 
believed that sour wine mixed with gall made it undrinkable. So it might put some fluid in your mouth if you were cotton mouth, but it wouldn't satisfy your thirst and you have to spit it out. Some people believed that it was a pain reliever. And so the drinking of this would ease some of your pain before the cross. And then that's why Jesus spat it out, because Jesus wanted to endure all the physical pain. Because it's speculation, I'm not going to stand on either one of those places. It doesn't really change the text too much. Because Matthew's not saying this to show whether Jesus is enduring pain or not. Matthew's going into this because it fulfills scripture. You've got three different references in the parenthesis under Roman numeral 2. This is from Psalm 69, verse 21, which reads, this is a psalm of David. David says, they also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This is what David said a thousand years before in his time of pain, in his time of suffering, in his time where he was being severely persecuted. And now here's the descendant of David, the Messiah, enduring the same way. Offered gall and vinegar as his drink. Verse 35, then they crucified him. Let's just stop right there. Maybe we've heard the story of what a crucifixion was like. Maybe we've seen the passion of the Christ and gotten the idea. Um, obviously horrible, obviously painful. The nails go through your hands. Huge, huge tent post type nails going through your hands. The word for hand could mean from your elbow to your fingertips, so whether that means literally through the palm or through the wrist, it could be either one based on the Greek word in scripture. But the nails going through each side, the nails go through your feet as they're put together. It stretches you, your body being stretched and the, the weight coming down makes every single breath torture. So, so, so to get that breath, you're, you're pulling up with your arms, you're pushing up with your feet. So all, all the weight is, is just the, the power, uh, the, the force of your weight going into where the holes are, shooting pain through you just so you can get up a little bit, just so you can suffer through one more breath before your body collapses again in, in more pain. It was intended to take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Matthew mentions none of it. He doesn't mention the scourging. He doesn't mention the details of the physical suffering. He spends more time talking about Jesus' clothes. Because as Matthew is writing to us, we, we keep in mind, Jesus was going through horrible physical pain. So were two other guys. There was somebody on his right and somebody on his left. that was. Those people were also suffering horrible physical pain. The physical pain was horrible there was something way worse. Jesus isn't the Messiah because he suffered physical pain. He's the Messiah because he bore our sin. The spiritual anguish was infinitely worse than the physical pain. So Jesus, Matthew doesn't spend the, the focus... Here's the physical. His focus is, here's the spiritual. And his focus is, look at how this fulfills Scripture. 
We're back in verse 35. Then they crucified him. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And here's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Another fulfillment of Scripture, pointing to Psalm 22. I'm not sure if you like homework, but here's some homework for you. Read Psalm 22 at least twice this week. Read that psalm and just look at all the connections to what David is talking about in the crucifixion account. He, Jesus Christ, fulfills Scripture. Sitting down, the soldiers keep watch over him. They put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The accusation, another way of saying that's the crime. We might have in our minds from from movies or or dramas that the cross is just this like infinitely high structure. That that their bodies are ten feet in the air. So if the body is ten feet in the air, then the accusation's sixteen feet in the air. And that's not entirely true because the accusation was supposed to be read by those that walked by. This was a threat to everybody else in the kingdom. That accusation. That's what they did to suffer this way. You all better not do that. Or this suffering is coming your way. So the the, the feet of the people on the cross were probably roughly a foot off the ground. So if if they're six feet tall, then their head is roughly seven feet in the air. So the accusation is seven and a half feet in the air. So like a doorway. The accusation is about as high as a doorway would be. So it would be easy for us to read as we are passing by, as we're witnessing this account. So those who are looking, why are these people suffering, you'd see in the middle. The reason the man in the middle is suffering is because he's Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the Jewish officials had a problem with that. Don't write, he's the king of the Jews. Write, he said, he's the king of the Jews. So this is how Pilate left it. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And this fulfills scripture. This is from your third reference in your notes, Isaiah 53, verse 12, which reads, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For the kids, transgressors means sinners. He was numbered with the sinners. He was considered one of the sinners. And he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. More homework for you. Read Isaiah 53 twice this week. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, two powerful sections of scripture that point to the cross. Jesus now on the cross, is fulfilling so many of those things that were said in those two amazing passages of Scripture. For time's sake, we will move into Roman numeral number three, if you've got your notes and you want to turn it over. This is the Savior's show of strength. Verse 39, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You destroyed the temple and built it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
The New King James says those who passed by. That's as literal as it gets. It means the bypassers. So these people mocking Jesus now, these are not the Jewish leaders who have hated Jesus and been conspiring against him for years. These are not the Roman officials who are just beating him and suffering him. These are passerbys. Jesus is apparently dying in some place outside of the city where there is foot traffic. And the average, everyday foot traffic walking by, they look at the accusation, Oh! Oh! You're Jesus! We heard about you. Where's your power now? We heard about your miracles. Perform a miracle now. We heard who you say you are. You sure don't look like a son of God now. And I don't know what your translation says. Some of the translations have mocked or ridiculed. New King James says blasphemed. That's the word. This is not I'm making fun of a human. This is irreverent, contemptible speech against God. Average, everyday people walking by blaspheming the Son of God as he's dying on the cross for our sins. 41, chief priests, same thing, mocking with the scribes and elders. Talking to them, they're not talking to Jesus, they're talking to themselves. They, they are definitely live in a room, an area where they just talk to the same five people that don't agree with their stupid points. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel... Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. We're going to come back to that phrase. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Because he said, I'm the son of God. Two-pronged attack. Jesus, if you're really the son of God, you should have the power to come down. Jesus, if you're really the son of God, God should want you down. If he comes down, we'll believe him. That's what's called a lie. They will not believe him if he comes down. He could look them right in the face while he's on the cross and say, that's what you want? Watch and get down. And they would say it's a trick. And they'd still want him crucified. Of course they would not believe him. John Calvin made a really interesting point in his commentary on this section and said that typically... Those that test Jesus, test God in this way, they don't just test, prove yourself. They do it with a time limit. God, I'll, if you make my marriage better, I'll believe in you. But that's not the whole sentence. If you make my marriage better now, I'll believe in you. God, if you bring healing to me now, I'll believe in you. If you give me the job I want, if you give me the wife I want, you, God, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God, you got to prove yourself to me. And you got to do it on my timeline if you want my faith. God forbid we ever go there. Verse 44 throws out there, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And it says robbers, plural. Luke tells us in his gospel account 
that one of the robbers up there dying at some point scolds the other robber. Don't you know who he is? Don't you know we deserve this, but he doesn't? One of those robbers then asks Jesus, remember me when you go before the Lord in paradise. I believe both gospel accounts. Up there on the cross, one of these robbers goes from blasphemer to saved. And Luke says, while Jesus is on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. God answered that prayer. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. A couple hours later, repentance on a cross. How great is our God. As we close, I want to point us to some irony in this passage that shows the great strength and great wisdom of God. The soldiers begin in our text this morning by mockingly bowing before God. All hail the king. They obviously didn't mean it when they bowed before him, but according to Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Those soldiers bowed mockingly once. The next time they bow, it will be with the reverence God deserves, forcefully or otherwise. Pilate's accusation was that Jesus is the king of the Jews. In Pilate's mind, that was the crime. In reality, that's the great identity of our great Savior. His being the king is not what made him worthy of death, but because he's the king, he endured death on our sake. And those who were passing by and the, the Jewish leaders, they said, if you're really the son of God, show your strength by getting down. But the reality is, Jesus Christ showed his strength by staying up. If Jesus Christ comes down, we are not saved. But because of his love and because of his power, he stayed. Because he had all the strength in the world, he endured the cross, despising the shame, according to Hebrews 12.2. And he's right now, because of that, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The love of God and the strength of Christ are never more apparent than at the cross. The cross is where we see the power of God. The cross is where we see the great love of God. And then there's those religions that say, if God really loved Jesus, he'd never let him do that. No, it's because God loved Jesus. It's because God loved you and me that Jesus endured the cross for us. In closing, let's all turn to Isaiah 53. I'm one of those nice teachers. I'm going to do your homework with you. Jesus is the Messiah. When we say he's the Messiah, that doesn't just mean he fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis and the Davidic covenant of First Chronicles. The Messiah had to fill the Abrahamic covenant and the Messiah had to fill, fulfill the Davidic covenant, but the Messiah also had to fulfill Isaiah 53. 
And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience that knew their Old Testament. They should have been familiar with these passages. So as they're reading about the suffering of the Savior by God's grace, they were reminded of this amazing passage of Scripture. Isaiah 53, it's 12 verses. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. How deep the Father's love for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if this doesn't show us the love of God, nothing will. May we in greater ways every day have a greater understanding of the incredible depths of your love. How awe-inspiring it is that the eternal one, the Son of God, the truly innocent one suffered sin for us. How incredible your plan. How incredible your love that you would offer your son for us. We know we're not worthy, but we know the truth of the scripture and it says it happened. May we rejoice. 
May we be full of gratitude. May we truly desire to live for you because Jesus Christ died for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.